So, I don't know about you, I grew up in uh, a nice temple in Detroit where Judaism was a very decorous and refined phenomenon. Uh, we certainly, we had uh, a lot of things in the temple, but we didn't have any magic and we didn't have any Kabbalah in those days. Although the first, uh, the first reform rabbi who s seemed to take a, an interest in Kabbalah was Larry Kushner, who grew up in the same temple. Lawrence Kushner, he grew up in the same temple in Detroit. So when I started getting interested in Kabbalah, someone told me, oh, we had one like you here just a few years before. Um, so uh, it, I did not uh, initially take interest in magic and exorcism and these kinds of things uh, in my teenage years when I began studying Kabbalah uh, step by step, slowly, slowly. But uh, when I was in graduate school, and became interested in a whole series of things and was looking for a dissertation topic, um, a, a number of the check boxes that I was keeping my eyes open for were things like uh, Kabbalah. Of course, I wanted something that had to do with Kabbalah. I also wanted something that had to do, if possible, with the early modern period, meaning 16th, 17th century, the transition to modernity. Um, and I was very interested in the history of science and the history of medicine. And uh, I was even interested in anthropology, which I studied as an undergraduate. So when I came upon materials from the 16th century, written by some very famous rabbis from that period, that uh, both provided reports of cases of spirit possession in various Jewish communities around the Mediterranean, and, uh, and other materials that provided exorcism techniques for treating the people who were described in the stories and who were not described in stories, but who may have been diagnosed as possessed. Um, and I found those materials as well. I thought, wow, this is really interesting, especially when actually, I think the first source that I came across that really made an impression on me was uh, a slightly later one, a 17th century source. But what really grabbed my attention was that this rabbi, writing in the 17th century, was an Italian rabbi by the name of Moses Moshe Zacut, or Zacuto. He's writing a, uh, a kind of, what, what looked like a responsum, if you know, what I mean by that, a rabbinic responsum. He had been asked a question in this little book, like in typical form for a response to literature, this literature of rabbinic answers to queries received about actual situations that people don't know how to deal with. That's basically what rabbinic responsa are. So somebody wrote him a letter saying, uh, we've got this woman, and uh, we think that she's possessed, but we don't really know what to do about it. And we know uh, that you're experienced in this matter. Maybe you could give us some guidelines, some guidance. And he wrote back a very detailed letter, which was subsequently published in this 17th century book. And the thing that really made an impression on me was that he didn't just say, oh, you have a possessed woman in your midst, you should uh, 
you know, say 10 Hail Marys and call me in the morning or whatever it is, he wrote back, okay, well, first of all, we have to talk about the diagnostics of the situation. How do you know that she's possessed? Why do you think that she's possessed? Because these are the symptoms of a possessed person. But if this woman is displaying other symptoms, she may simply, she may not simply, she may be a victim of some kind of organic mental illness. And here I was quite taken aback by the fact that a 17th century rabbi was making such a clear distinction between an organic form of mental illness and spirit possession. Because like most modern people, I was under the impression that in pre-modern times, if somebody acted weird, then you know, it would be like a Monty Python scene where they'd say, you know, it's a witch! You know, bur burn her! Or, you know, something like that. Uh, so, you know, see if she's a duck, if she floats, and that kind of, I don't know how many Monty Python fans there are here, but in any case, when I saw that, I realized that we had everything. We had magic, Kabbalah, history of medicine, history of psychiatry, you could even say. Um, and uh, at, at that point, uh, you could say, I, I began taking the, the, the deep dive into the subject. Um, and what I'll do uh, in the next short while is kind of give you a little introduction, a little overview to the subject in its long durée and its long history, and uh, leave some time for questions, which I think probably there will be, because it's, uh, it's a subject that you, I can't possibly answer every question about in the course of a short presentation, but um, undoubtedly there may be some things of you know, particular interest to you. And it is a subject that stretches, depending upon how you define the boundaries, from biblical times to the present, obviously with very different manifestations in the different periods. The most prominent period is still the early modern period in terms of cases reported and documentary evidence, you might say, for this phenomenon in the Jewish world. But it continued through the 20th century rather uh, significantly. At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Dybbuk's became famous not only as something that uh, Kabbalists have to deal with, but as the most famous Yiddish and subsequently Hebrew play ever written by, um, by the very famous uh, Ansky, the ethnographer and journalist and, and playwright, of course. And uh, my new friend, David Wieder, has just... Vilner, of course. I met, another, I met a Wieder also since I got here. But... Uh, this is the Vilna, not the Vida, um, has very graciously and kindly gifted me his father's personal copy of Ansky's Yiddish play printed in Vilna, 1926, we saw there. So it's really a very moving gift. And I just, although my training is, a, is an early modern historian, I just published an article a couple of months ago on Ansky's play. So it's... Uh, we could say, you say, I, I'm getting it a few months late, but at least, I, at least I'm an appreciative recipient of that lovely gift. 
Um, so I'm going to take you back real fast to begin with a look at the arguably a, a, a first source on spirit possession. And that's just to suggest that we're not talking about something that's utterly foreign to uh, Jewish sources, even in, in the biblical period, taken in its most uh, basic sense, spirit possession just means that there's a spirit in a living person's body that is uh, usually overcoming that person or displacing that person. And uh, I think it's, it's used somewhat metaphorically in this passage, but there's, there, there's still kind of implication here that that King Saul is being possessed or obsessed by a spirit, and then uh, there's a suggestion made that he can be cured with a, a kind of exorcism, although it's not a magical technique per se, we, um, but a musical technique, maybe a kind of musical magic. This is from the first Samuel, the book First Samuel 16. And you can see that they're basically an exchange of spirits. On the one hand, King Saul was treated as a, as a prophet. And you could say in the Hebrew Bible, when God speaks to you, by definition, you're a prophet. But the Spirit of God was with Saul, but then left Saul. And another spirit began tormenting him. And that's not strictly speaking possession, Linda Blair style, but... We're talking um, a kind of uh, state that the king was in that was recognized as resulting from his being tormented by an evil spirit. His, uh, his retinue, his staff said, okay, we see that there's an evil spirit from Elohim. Divine Elohim is used in the Bible in many different senses, but part of this sort of divine retinue, this... the the, the angelic and demonic realms that are part of the celestial bureaucracy. That's part of biblical theology, basically. What can you do? It's not as uh, clean a monotheism as some Greeks might, might have liked. But this spirit from Elohim is tormenting you. Now, let's figure out how we can get you cured. We need to find someone who can come in here and play some music and make you better. And, uh, of course, people, if you remember the story, King David is the one who is enlisted to come in and play some music. Uh, and, uh, and it works. Uh, just to illustrate also how central this kind of, uh, this phenomenon was in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Israelite world, uh, the New Testament is not uh, lacking by any means in references to people being possessed and exorcisms being performed. Um, and the New Testament, after all, is in a certain way, like usually, you say, usually the Christians say that the, the Bible, the Old Testament is, is Christian. So I can also say, well, the New Testament is Jewish because this was maybe written before the, by Jews, for, for Jews, um, in any case, without getting too, too much on that point, uh, in the, at the, you know, 2,000 years ago, in ancient Israel, 
people thought that it was possible for spirit possession to take place and that exorcisms were required to treat people who were suffering from such um, an illness. Now, but it's not just the stories that we remember, perhaps, some of us at least, from the New Testament of Jesus casting the, the Satan's, the demons into the swine. There's some famous stories like that of Jesus as exorcist. But at the end of the book of Mark, I think it's really striking that, the, that this book ends with uh, an, uh, an identification of the signs of a true Christian. And what are the signs of a true Christian in the book of Mark? Well, this is how you know if someone's a Christian. Okay? Not by the bumper stickers on their car, not by the party that they're registered to vote for, but in my name they will cast out devils. In other words, sign number one of what a true Christian is, according to the book of Mark, is they can exercise using the name Jesus. Jesus is a magical name. Works very well for exorcisms. Everybody knows that. They will have the gift of tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands and be unharmed should they drink deadly poison. They will lay their hands on the sick who will recover. Fascinating passage. A uh, lot of things written about it by Bible scholars, not our issue per se, but just to remark upon the fact that 2,000 years ago, in a Jewish community in the land of Israel, when people were thinking about what was going on, uh, this became a sign of uh, a Christian. We have also, uh, now, thanks to finds from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the so-called Nag Hammadi Library, um, um, Egyptian, Demotic, Greek spells that have been found in Egypt. We have a, a lot of magical material from about 2,000 years ago. And uh, spirit possession and exorcism are well represented in this material from, from, from that time. And prominent scholars of antiquity identify the Jewish milieu as particularly significant in the emergence of this phenomenon. Okay, so, but I'm not going to give you a whole thing on antiquity. I'm not a scholar of antiquity anyway. Um, but all this being the case, nevertheless, after the Jesus stories, and with the exception of a few short uh, stories, accounts in the Talmud. I mean, Talmud's a it's pretty big, they call it the Sea of Talmud. There are only a couple of stories. It's not very rich on, on uh, spirit possession and exorcism. Uh, we don't have much literary material documenting this phenomenon among Jews for a millennium. It's just not there. And we have some evidence of, um, uh, not of cases being described, of people being possessed, but we have magical literature that has reached us from these, this dark millennium in terms of sources, right? From between, I don't know, 500 and 1500. We have magic 
manuscripts that have exorcism techniques, but we don't have we don't have stories, we don't have accounts, case case reports, and the case re the case reports, and uh, and also a kind of efflorescence of magical sources that include treatments for spirit possession will uh, emerge only in the 16th century. So there is something going on in the 16th century. That if, it, if not on the level of uh, the emergence of, of the phenomenon that, that has been dormant for a long time, at least something has happened that has led to the decision to write about it in a way that wasn't true before. So we, like, was, were people possessed less frequently between 500 and 1500? I don't really know. I know that nobody thought apparently that it was that important to write stories about people who were possessed, if they were. Uh, but apparently they were because otherwise it's hard to understand why techniques for exorcism would have been circulating in that period. Um, so it's interesting to think about why around 1600, why in the, or let's say between 1500 and 1600, something changed and stories of possessed people began uh, being written and began circulating around the Mediterranean. Um, this in any case is the period that is uh, familiar and that was relevant even to the composition of this famous Yiddish and Hebrew play, the Dybbuk by Ansky. These were the, the stories that were composed originally in the 16th century and continued to be composed in the 17th and 18th centuries and circulating. These were the materials that Ansky assembled in the course of his ethnographic expeditions in Eastern Europe and turned into his play. These were his raw materials. So what are we talking about now when we get to this period, to the more early modern uh, spirit possession? So first of all, just the word itself, dibik. Dibik, it's uh, kind of a Yiddish word. It's not, it is based on Hebrew and probably simply a shorthand of a phrase like davuk miruach ra'ah. Davuk, devek, you know a little Hebrew, devek means today. Anybody know? Glue, glue right. Devek is glue, but you might have also heard of dvekis or dvekut. Dvekut mean anything to anyone? Dvekut is like samadhi, right? Being in a mystical state of uh, clinging, adhesion to the Godhead. So basically, that Hebrew root, Dalad Bet Kuf, means something stuck, something's connected. So a, a, a Dibbuk became a, an Ashkenazic way of referring to a Ruach Ra'ah, an evil spirit. And it's, it's not that an evil spirit in this sense, means the spirit of a person who was once living, but not a, usually not a very good person. So uh, let's just say, like I would tell my five-year-old, a bad guy who died, 
So his, that bad guy who died, he's the Dybbuk, right? He, that's, usually the, that's usually the scenario. It, it is an innovation, conceptually, to say that spirit possession is caused by what we might colloquially uh, refer to as a ghost. If you look at the reports of spirit possession in the, in, um, in the Jewish world, going back to King Saul and that account we saw a moment ago, if I showed you other material from antiquity, and if you looked laterally to see what was going on among the Christians and the Muslims during the same period, you'd see that uh, people are not being diagnosed as possessed by dead humans, but by uh, demons. It's a little bit different. You could say, well, what's a demon? Maybe a demon is some kind of transmutation of a bad dead guy. And actually, there are rabbinic statements to that effect, that, that, the, that the souls of evil people turn into demons. But there is a, there is a difference, right? It's, uh, it's maybe sounds a bit subtle, but once some, something has been de designated as a demon, then if you're an exorcist, all you have to do is get rid of that demon and the person should recover. But if, the, if we're talking about a person, and it's usually a person known in the community, maybe a bad person, maybe known infamous in the community, nevertheless, in most of these accounts, we're talking about a Jew who was part of your community, who, who made some mistakes, sometimes rather serious mistakes, uh, lapses of judgment in various matters. But the, the, the agent causing the affliction is not just uh, like a virus or a bacteria or a demon that you can eliminate and then everything will be fine. But they're your fellow, they're your fellow Jew. You've got to think about them a little bit also. So with this new uh, understanding of spirit possession that emerges in the 16th century, exorcism becomes more complicated because the exorcist has to cure the person who's being afflicted, but they also have to try and save the Dybbuk. Now we have to have some compassion. The Dybbuk is also one of us. Dead, but really, like Nebuch, really suffering. Can't get into heaven, can't even get into Gehenna, right? The typical trajectory as understood in the 16th century by rabbis is that every Jew dies, every Jew goes through no more than one year of a kind of purgatorial time in the spiritual dry cleaner, uh, Gehenna, get cleans all the stains off your soul, and then once you're all clean, you're go on to Gan Eden. You're fine. Now, in the 16th century, they also introduced, with what we would say in the Hebrew, full gas, full power, uh, belief in reincarnation, which was a kind of esoteric belief for hundreds of years in the Jewish community, but in the 16th century emerges as a much more significant and central belief that. Uh, that uh, catches on in a big way. And 
So you have this, you have a second option, really. From a Jewish point of view, beginning about 500 years ago, you can say, well, what, what happens when I die after 120 years? Well, you know, you might have done what you needed to do in this realm, and so you can just go through Gehenna, clean, clean up a little bit, and go to Gan Eden. But for many people, it depends. They'll start saying in the 16th century, well, you still may have more work to do on this plane of existence. Your soul may need a little bit more aging like a good whiskey. So we're going to send it back for another round or two. This is not punitive. This is actually usually uh, meant to help the person grow spiritually through multiple visits to this, uh, this realm. And you come back. That's reincarnation. That's called in Hebrew Gilgul. Very hard to imagine the new understanding of spirit possession in the 16th century without the rise in popularity and acceptance of the belief in reincarnation. Because basically, it's a failed reincarnation that's going on when a person becomes a Dybbuk. They're not getting reborn as a baby and getting a fresh start. They're, they're basically trying to deal with a limbo state that they find themselves in because they don't qualify for Gehenna because they're too bad. They don't deserve the dry cleaners. You know, sometimes you take something to dry cleaners and they say, sorry, we can't get this stain out. So same here. If a person has done too horrific a sin, then they don't qualify. There's a, there's a debate about this among rabbis, actually, in the, in the early modern period, because it says in Pirkei Avot, maybe you remember, Kol Yisrael Yashlam Chalak Lulam every Jew has a share in the world to come. So is that true or is that not true? And some people say every, every Jew, it means every good Jew, it doesn't mean every So they, they're qualifying it a little bit. Um, but, so I'm giving you kind of the a quick overview of all of these connected issues, reincarnation and the challenge of dealing with the fact that we have somebody who has reincarnated, but not as a baby, but as a conscious adult human who no longer has a body. So to uh, get some respite from a very unfortunate state of limbo, unable to either reincarnate or go to this purgatorial dry cleaners, is finding refuge in the body of uh, usually a person known to them in the community. And if we want to get, you know, kind of um, you know, with, our, with, with the times we live in, we can, if, I, if I can gender the subject for a moment with your permission, um, usually it's a man's soul and a, who's like a bad man and a woman who's being penetrated quite literally by this bad man and taken over by him. Uh, and that's, of course, just the tip of the iceberg of a whole conversation about what's going on with, with the gendering of this phenomenon. But let me, let me continue just a little bit more to, to lay out some real basic language. Um, some of you language fans will appreciate that in English, Greek, and Hebrew, we have a word that can mean, depending upon the context, to adjure um, or to put someone under oath, right? And 
in a word that could be used in a courtroom to deal with a, with a witness, for example, uh, but is used as well in a magical context to refer to the way one interacts with, with uh, the spirit world, with, with angels, demons, or in this case, uh, the souls of the evil dead. So you adjure a spirit, just like you adjure a witness. In English, horkos, um, which, uh, which is the etymological root of the English exorcism, and in Hebrew, hashba'an, mashbi'a ani alecha, you do the same for a witness, and you say the classical magical formula is mashbi'a ani alecha, I adjure you, and then you fill in the blank with whatever spirit, angel, demon it is you feel like adjuring. Um, okay. This is a fascinating pre-Kabbalistic magical uh, ceremony or a technique to remove an evil spirit, a demon, not a, not a human soul. And uh, I don't want to take the time to go through it word for word. I can make this presentation available through the rabbi or through Ari Katz if you want to have more time to read the sources on your own subsequently. But basically what you see is, uh, in, in this source, is that the exorcist is adjuring angels as well as demons to do his bidding, namely to remove the dibbuk. Well, it's not a dibbuk in this case, but to remove the demon immediately and uh, thereby cure the person who's possessed. You'll see already in this source something that will be constant, even though exorcism technique will change because it's different to deal with a demon than it is to deal with your, you know, your, the, your neighbor or the guy who used to sit next to you in shul, right? Um, but always the first, the first task of the exorcist is to get the name of the spirit or bad guy who's doing the possessing. Having the name gives the exorcist the power to assert authority over that being. You've got to get the name. And of course, they're wily. They don't always give you the name the first time you ask. So there's a lot of drama in many of the accounts of spirit possession over this uh, difficult task of getting the name. So this is just a recap of what I've said already. There, there are sources going back to antiquity. There's a millennium of silence after a series of references. Uh, the genre seems to revive as a literary phenomenon, at least, at least people are writing about it in the be uh, beginning of the 16th century. Uh, a, a sort of secondary point, if you look at the long history of narratives of spirit possession, it's pretty obvious that the early classical accounts that circulated widely around the Mediterranean became the models used by later writers of those accounts. And maybe even more fascinatingly, you see, I think it's fair to say, I mean, we can't get to the events themselves. We only, they're all mediated by these narratives. Like nobody, 
and even if we could get there, somebody today would say it's fake news, right? So what do we know? It doesn't matter if there were cameras in the room and we taped it, somebody could still say it's fake news. So as far as we can tell, even the people who were experiencing themselves as suffering from spirit possession and even the communities that, that validated this understanding of the disturbance in their midst were, were aware of these accounts. In other words, it, it didn't, it's not just a literary phenomenon where, where, where a story is influencing later stories about something similar, but a, a story that is having an impact on the way people in real life are understanding what's going on in their environment and the way people are experiencing their own pathological symptoms and, and identifying them and making sense of them. So, um, and we have about 80 accounts. Is 80 a lot or is 80 a, a small number? That I can't really answer, but it, until you get to modern history, the numbers are always really small. Like if you had someone here talking to you about antiquity, they would tell you all our sources, you know, my friends who are, who are Greek historians or something, they have like a bookshelf with all of their sources. You know, when you get to 20th century historians, you have, oh, these big archives, and how can you get through it? When you, now, I pity the people who are gonna try and do research on our age, just reading one person's email account will take them their whole life. So, too many sources, too much information. So 80 sources that reached us, 80 accounts that were written, preserved, circulated, we have them in manuscripts, and. Um, some of them wound up in printed works. Okay, uh, this is again a kind of recap. Earliest sources are demons. We get the dead souls only in the 16th century. And this is connected to the rise in the doctrine or rise in the acceptance of a belief in reincarnation in Jewish uh, circles in the 16th century. Uh, just a, a little background on reincarnation and a kind of more positive spin on the possibilities that it was thought to afford in that 16th century environment. The, the most prominent Kabbalist in the 16th century in Sfat was Moses Cordovero, the Ramak, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero from Cordoba, you can tell from his last name. And he wrote about the fact that it was known that uh, in Spain was, was not so far removed from him. He was living and writing 50 years after the expulsion from Spain. So he was saying already in Spain, whenever there was a problem, the great leaders of the community would go out to the cemetery and, and prostrate themselves on the graves of the righteous and incubate the souls of the righteous. This becomes a kind of positive spirit possession. As you see in the very last sentence, they would cling soul to soul in solitary meditation. The idea was to have a kind of dvekut, or clinging, with the righteous dead, and thereby use the righteous to awaken the compassion of other ancestors, like that it's not fully explained in the passage that I've adduced here, but 
but the bottom line is your, your community is in trouble. Your communal leadership goes to the cemetery, prostrates upon the graves of the righteous from that community's history. And the former great leaders of the community whose souls are awakened in this act of prostration then fly up to heaven and, or sometimes they say they fly to Hebron, to, to Hebron. I don't know, how do you say Hebron? Is it okay just to say Hebron? Okay. They fly to Hebron, to the cave of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, the Marat HaMachpelah, and there they awaken the patriarchs and the matriarchs and say, listen, there our people in Cordoba need help. And, that, and then Abraham and Sarah can go tell Hashem that there's a problem in Cordoba. And that's how they, that's the network. That's how it works, the red button. Um, now, I'm, you'll forgive me. This is just, uh, if I had a little longer, maybe I would tell you more historical background to what's going on in the 16th century. Spot where so much of this seems to take off in the 16th century is kind of the new cultural capital of the Jewish world after the expulsion from Spain. Um, and because geopolitically it became possible for Jews to settle there with rel relative ease, okay? I'm putting a big emphasis on relative. Um, it, we find that pietistically oriented Jews began choosing to emigrate to the land of Israel in the, in the, uh, in the wake of the Ottoman conquest of 1516. It was usually not economically advantageous to make Aliyah in the 16th century, just like it's usually not economically advantageous now, unless you're part of the 1% that controls 80% of Israel's wealth. Uh, but uh, people were making that choice to go to Israel, including some of the greatest rabbis of the diaspora who chose not only to live in Israel, but to live in Sfat. Uh, not only for spiritual or mystical reasons, because of its proximity to the, the grave of the man with whom the Zohar was associated, Shimon Bar Yochai, Rashbi, but, um, but that was not an insignificant reason for that, uh, the, the choice of Tzfat uh, above even Jerusalem. And communion with the dead was also a big part of that community's ethos. It's also relevant. There's so many issues here. I'm, I, I, I'm probably confusing things more than need be, but just, just to see that in the 16th century we have all of these developments a new mystical city of pietistic revival, rabbis who are teaching the doctrine of reincarnation in that city, the significance of that city's proximity to the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which is in Meron, with an easy uh, view of everyone in Sfat, and very soon a graveyard in Sfat that will be filled with the graves of those giant lights who came to settle there in the 16th century. When you go there today, you see it's still a kind of place of, uh, we'd say, pulchan ametim, a kind of veneration of the dead. Um, so not hugely out of place for the setting of 
a resurgence in spirit possession and exorcism. That's, uh, that's a spot story. And in, the, in, in just the few minutes that I'm afraid remain, if, uh, my instructions were sort of generically to speak for 45 minutes and, and then allow 15, 20 minutes of questioning. Is that, is that the case, Rabbi? That's what, okay, so you, what did you give about a 20-minute introduction, right? So I still have 15 minutes, right? Um, all right, if I had just a short, uh, this, what I, what I would like to do if I only have, if I only have a couple of minutes is share with you, um, it's always a tough call, but uh, um, um, an exorcism technique composed by, you could say basically composed by Isaac Luria, who's the sort of, after Cordovero, when Cordovero died, Luria became the great Kabbalist of 16th century Tzvat. And Luria was the one who seems to have been responsible for uh, answering the need to reboot the ancient techniques of exorcism in light of the diagnostic developments uh, or the, uh, you could say, the etiological developments of the decades that preceded him, right? So if for that... We have literally uh, 1,500 years or so of magical techniques for exorcism that are all pretty much the same. You, you burn some sulfur, you might blow a shofar, you might light some candles, and you might say some magical incantations, some magical words. But all of these are good to get out demons, but they don't do anything for dead guys whom you want to help. So... Basically, Luria has to rewrite the technique so that it both effectively removes the spirit, the unwanted spirit, from the body of its unwilling host, usually a young woman who would rather get back to other things and not be possessed by a dead guy, um, but has some compassion on the dead guy as well and does try and do something to ameliorate the suffering of uh, a person who is basically in limbo, stuck. And it's not a kind of, it's not just a boring limbo. I guess that could be pretty awful as well, just to be stuck and just to be bored. But uh, the way that they describe it, it's always a pretty, a pretty gruesome limbo. So this is, this is Vital's, oh, I didn't even say who Vital was, but Vital is... Luria's most famous disciple, Chaim Vital, who was from a Calabrian family, and, uh, but among those people who chose to come to the land of Israel in the wake of the uh, Ottoman conquest. So he says, this is a unification, which, which, uh, which is interesting just because the, the magical techniques for the last thousand years or more usually called um, adjurations or something like that, hashba'ot, something. But to call it a unification already is, is a kind of suggestion that we're speaking about a Kabbalistic spiritual uh, 
technique, and not only a magical technique. And that was important for these guys, because they felt uh, they had a kind of, we might call it arbitrary, but nevertheless a kind of judgmental point of view with regard to distinguishing uh, sort of contemplative Kabbalah from what's often called practical Kabbalah. And their disdain, similar in the 16th century, you see something like with doctors as well. You have doctors, but doctors don't do practical things in the 16th century. They didn't, wouldn't like lance your boil for you or cut out some growth that was disturbing you. That, for that, they would send you to the barber surgeon because that was beneath their dignity. So there's a similar kind of distinction made between contemplative Kabbalah and practical Kabbalah. The people who do contemplative Kabbalah think that the magic guys are kind of like hacks. So, so they're going to say, well, we do exorcism, but we're not barber surgeon, magician, exorcists. We're mystics. We're Kabbalists. And we do unifications, because unification is what it's all about, unifying the Holy One, blessed be He, and the Shekhinah, right? That's the big goal of every Kabbalist, to bring this unity back to the divine realm between its male and female facets. So even an exorcism technique is labeled a unification by this Kabbalist. And he explains it in the first paragraph. Uh, nothing you haven't heard from me already. An evil person sometimes gets trapped and is then in limbo, and then enters the body of a man or a woman, uh, interestingly referred to here as sometimes called the falling sickness, holy hanofel, is the Hebrew, as I recall. Uh, and this is a yichu, this is a unification technique that can work. But you look at the two things that it does. By means of it, his soul is somewhat fixed, which means we got to get him over the threshold to begin the dry cleaning process, and we get, the, we get him out of the body. So we, uh, we get what we were looking for as, as an exorcism, um, more generally. And now he says, this is how it works, as I've done it and tried it. And we know from many accounts that I haven't shared with you today, unfortunately, but um, are in my book, uh, that uh, Vital was the exorcist for a number of cases in the 16th and 17th centuries, he eventually, he spent the last 20 odd years of his life in Damascus, and that's where he's buried. He's not actually buried in Tzfat with, with, with the other guys. But this is how you do it. You take the arm of the possessed person, and then you take his pulse, and there's a whole diagnostic system that's based on the pulse that he explains elsewhere. Uh, you have to do a kind of um, meditation that includes uh, uh, a diagnostic uh, assessment of what's specifically wrong with the person as revealed by their pulse. And uh, just note, it's quite interesting, people who are interested in Chinese medicine often are curious about Kabbalistic pulse diagnostication. Uh, it's rooted, textually speaking, in the Tikkunei Zohar, in part of the Zohar, most likely to, written around 1400. And in that passage, the different vowels that we use in Hebrew are associated with different pulses. So the, diagnostic, the diagnostician 
is meant to ascertain whether the pulse that is felt is most similar to which, you know, one of those vowel signs. You know, the points and lines of shva, kamatz, chirik, patach, all of those Hebrew uh, vowel, vowel signs. Then you do some things that sound very much like the old-fashioned techniques. You say psalms, but not just psalms. You say psalms forward and backwards. A, tra a kind of uh, sure sign that you're dealing with a magical technique, whether it's in the Jewish world or the Muslim world or the Christian world, is what used to be called at least nomina barbara, like barbarian words, un unintelligible language. And uh, one of way that you generate the unintelligible language that's very powerful against the demons is by saying things backwards. If you have a pater noster or you have aleinu l'shabeach or whatever is part of your normal normative liturgy and you recite it backwards, it gets much stronger. See, it makes no sense, but it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to us. The main thing is that it makes sense to the to the to the spirits, and uh, scares the spirits. And this is what you see going on here. Uh, you're getting his, you're getting his name. You're getting him to speak to you. You use the shofar, so it's also very similar to the older techniques. Um, you're vocalizing various names with certain uh, certain vowels to make it even stronger. Um, this is just a, to give a sense of what such a thing looks like, uh, even if the Hebrew is a bit, like as I said, most of it is nonsense anyway. I don't mean that judgmentally, it just and it doesn't have semantic value, meaning. Um, so the, on the, the top line is the verse from the Psalms. That's a, that's a central, that's the central uh, active ingredient, you might say, of the exorcism technique. The active ingredient is Psalms, what is it, 109 verse, I forget. If I were a Christian, I could give you chapter and verse, but never. I'm just a Jew. So it's from Psalms somewhere, okay? I think it's 109. Now you see what's going on in the next verse. They've taken the first and they've flipped the order of the words. So the first word of the second line is the last word of the first line. So instead of Hafkel alav rasha v'satan yamod al yemino, it's Yemino al Yamon Satan Okay, it doesn't it doesn't make sense as a sentence, but that's okay. We're doing that forward and backward thing. But then we gotta go beyond it. Yemino, the word is now flipped. So it's Yemino. My son now is very confused, trilingual five-year-old who often tries to read English from right to left. So now I'm I'm getting good at reading Hebrew from left to right. Uh, but you'll see that each word is flipped, and each word is vocalized with a different vowel because there's this tradition that each of the Hebrew vowels has a connotation, an association, first of all with the sfirot, which we didn't speak about, but I saw as you come into the room, you can pick up a sfirot chart, and you can come to my intro to Kabbalah classes for more information on that. But each of the each of the vowels has a kind of quality 
that is being leveraged here to make the technique more effective. And, and he tells you, if you want to know, this is called uh, kamatz. That's the sphera called crown, keter. And this is the patach, it's connected to chokhmah, wisdom, and so forth. So just to give you a sense of uh, how that technique looks, also, again, mostly sort of as a feast for your eyes, although uh, I probably should show you a real old manuscript, but here you can see it better. Um, here they're throwing out, they're taking a lot of material out of the ancient arsenal against demons. Angelic names on top, again vocalized, and submitted to this transmutation process, uh, changing letters, for example, if you have an aleph, changing it into a taf, like switching A and Z and B and Y, it's called atbash. And then you see yud hey vav -Hey. Everybody knows God's name is yud hey vav -Hey. announced it at the Parsha, if anyone was in shul yesterday. But in Hebrew, you have this amazing thing that the Kabbalists love to play with, and that is that Hebrew letters can be spelled. It's not just if you say, how do you spell B? You spell C, C. And you spell B, D. In Hebrew, you say, how do you spell Aleph? You say, Aleph, Lamed, Peh. How do you spell Bet? Bet, Yud, Taf. How do you spell Gimel? Gimel, Yud, Mem, Lamed. Right, so, so they say, well, so God's name is Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. But how do you spell Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey? Well, Yud, pretty obvious. Yud, Vav, Dalet. But Hey, Hey, you could spell Hey, Yud. Hey, you could spell Hey, Hey. You could spell it. Hey, Aleph. So they go to town on this. They go to town on this, and depending on how they spell out the letters of God's name, they're able to use it for different functions. I think I've gone over my five minutes, but you can tell I, once I get into it, I get enthusiastic. Um, here, just to, to we'll tie it up, and I'll open it up for questions, because who knows what of this is most intriguing to many of you. Um, but ultimately you want to get the spirit out. You want to get the spirit out through um, a part of the body that is relatively expendable because the, there's a concern that on its way out the spirit could cause some damage. So the exorcists are always aiming for the, for the big toe, which is big enough to afford <laughs> exit. But if your big toe gets messed up, like, whatever, choose the limb. Like, where, what's, what is your most expendable organ? Um, they felt that the big toe was probably the way to go. And you have to, of course, impress upon the spirit that uh, usually he not fool around and come back and do this again. So that's also part of it, the kind of putting the spirit in cherem and making the spirit take a vow that he won't come back. And... Uh, the voice and the speaking of the spirit and how to deal with that, uh, dealing with the potential of lying of, on the spirit's part and so forth. Now I have a whole bunch of show and tell of crazy magic stuff, but uh, it, let me stop already uh, having gone over and give you 10-15 minutes of questions, please, and thank you for your attention. Spirit possession and exorcism. Yes. Good.
some way or another when Kabbalah is this stuff or whatever, it's, it's Jews trying to make sense of the world that they live in, which in most times is a very difficult, harsh world, oppression one thing or another. Mm -hmm. Even this Bibbuk thing, you know, we're getting rid of all, we're trying to figure out why are things so bad. We're getting rid of these evil spirits that are making things so bad, so we're going to have to cleanse them and bring it back. And the Jewish witch doctors now have these manuals to do it. Mm -hmm. So it just seems to me there's a common thread running through all of this, even like the, the Messiah is going to save us, and it's extended into Judaism, into Christianity, with the rapture. Well, okay, I don't know if, if everybody heard. Um, the, the comment was that uh, Jews have, uh, have it bad much of the time, and a lot of the phenomena that we're hearing about um, seems, seem to respond to hard times and try and alleviate the suffering. And I would say, um, is that fair? Is a kind of summary of the comment? Uh, There's a good example. Yes. Fifteen hundred to sixteen hundred. Yes. Sixteen forty-eight was Mielnitsky Rebellion, right. which was a Holocaust to say the least. Sure. And Although sixteen forty-eight uh, doesn't explain fifteen forty-eight. You know what I mean? Like. Well, that's why. I in other words, lo chaser. We could say lo lo chaser bechol dor vador kamim aleinu lechaloteinu. But I, w I would only say this as a as an historian. And anthropologist or historical anthropologist, and that is the problem with that explanation is is how broad it is, and and and, and the fact that it, it doesn't if it's true it explains everything, but something that explains everything doesn't really explain anything either. Like why why in the 16th century does it take this form, and why does it take that particular form in that particular place and in that cultural environment and how is it playing, how is it even, even more local? What's going on in that village? Or what's going on in that family? And why is it gendered? And why is it happening to women rather than to men? And what's going on there? Um, and, you know, um, a lot of people look at this material as part of the history of medicine as well, and the history of illness, and the history of psychiatry. And, of course, how we deal with it's not. It's far from clear that mental illness is some kind of uh, universal, timeless thing. That you know, if you if you knew every disease by its uh, fingerprint, its chemical fingerprint, or whatever, you could say, oh, in the in, in a thousand years ago, they called that by such and such a name, and 500 years ago they called it by a different name and so forth. What, at least what, what seems to be the case is that at least, at least mental illnesses, but probably also not only mental illnesses, uh, are created to no small extent by the, the cultures that recognize them as such and produce them as such, right? There are certain diseases of their times that you see uh, all of a sudden appearing in France. You have the, you know, these people who have a kind of disease where they, they're recognized as a disease of uh, wandering, 
They leave home, it's a kind of mental illness where they leave home and they wander aimlessly for, for years. And they're all, what's it? Yes, yes, yes. So these are, these are cultural syndromes, you could say. And if you can say, oh, all these cultural phenomenon are, are a result of suffering and a kind of vain attempt to make things better. Um, but again, I just would say that uh, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the manifestations are so diverse and the conditions are so diverse that, that as a, as a, it certainly isn't a meaningful as a, as a specific explanation for anything. Um, so I, I prefer not to stress the, uh, you know, this kind of uh, great variety of cultural phenomena as just a various variations on one theme of suffering and how to escape it. I think too, there, I'll leave it at that. I already probably said too much. Yes, sir. How Kabbalists started? Ah, uh, well, the, I mean, numbers? Uh, why, you mean just how the centrality of numbers in Kabbalah? Okay, I mean, I'll just put in an advertisement for Kabbalah 101 and my evening series uh, uh, on the Kabbalah Unveiled, where I'll have more time to, to deal with that question specifically. But Kabbalah emerges in documents that have reached us in the 12th century, at the end of the 12th century, in the early 13th century. Um, and the numbers thing we find um, it, going back uh, to, to the early uh, rabbinic literature, but, but with certainly uh, new intensity in the 12th century, uh, especially among the German pietists for whom the whole uh, corpus of Hebrew literature is, is um, kind of translated into numerical values that it can expose the secret connections between different passages and different words so basically, by, by converting letters and words into numbers, these figures started uh, creating connections between, between uh, different parts of the corpus. This becomes a kind of, you could say, kind of interpretive strategy, but it's meant to expose the secrets that aren't obvious because when you read the text, you don't, you don't see those connections. They're hidden in the numerical values. Um, and, the num and the numerical value of, or let's just say the number of words in a verse could also be significant. They used it very extensively in the earliest prayer books that were produced in Ashkenaz. So we can say that people today who use the Ashkenazic rite of prayer are using liturgy that was edited 700 years ago by German pietists to make sure 
that the number of words in the formula would add up to precise values that would correspond to these secret connections that they, that they presumed were behind all of it. So it's a kind of secret mystery rite, you might say. Um, even in uh, Kiddush for Friday night, to make sure that there are 35 words before the wine blessing and 35 words after the wine blessing, because 35 plus 35 equals 70, which is the numerical value of yain, which is the word for wine. And it's also the numerical value of the word sowed, which is secret. So yes, this is, this is part of the mix and goes way back. And, uh, and it's also one of the places where it's harder to clearly distinguish between practical Kabbalah and contemplative Kabbalah because both expressions of Kabbalah are attentive to these issues. Jews basically believe, going back to antiquity, that the language of the Torah, the language of our people, is a divine language spoken by God and that the world was created through the utterances of God, beginning with let there be light. And uh, so this divine language is not simply con a convention that we all agree that we're going to call uh, the color red a dome, but it's essential, something about the color red that d doesn't come through with the English word red because we've just agreed that we'll call that color that word. In Hebrew, the presumption is, if it's called Adom, then you should, find, you should know that something, the numerical value of Adom is significant, the root of that word is significant to the nature of the thing itself, which is called by that name. And this, this provides fuel for rabbinic thought throughout antiquity, and then gets on steroids in the Middle Ages, you could say, with the rise of German pietism and Kabbalah. Yes, Rabbi? Is there any self-help in your study that you can tell us? That we don't need an external exorcist, either things oh, you, you taught us very Psalm interesting. 109, or yes, backwards, yes. Right. Um, well, I could tell you a couple of things. Um, well, one is that uh, the idea of self-help is not entirely an innovation. So, you know, even if you're kidding, there, there are techniques preserved from 16th century Tzfat that, that Luria gave to his disciples to perform on themselves. So, he, Luria presumed that if his disciples were suffering from uh, an unwanted spirit, possession, that they could run some of these techniques on themselves and, and auto-diagnose and auto-exercise. Uh, so that's interesting in and of itself. So much of the practical side of Luriana Kabbalah is soul work. It's working with uh, neshamas, the souls of the dead, processing those souls, interacting with those souls, the way the same Kabbalist who came up with the theory that the technique that I was reading with you a few moments ago explained all of eating in those terms. What are you doing when you say a blessing and have a bite of a sandwich? You're, well, everything is full of sparks, everything is full of souls, 
Everything is moving, reincarnating, cycling and recycling. And you are a soul processor as a, as a Jew in the world. And you have, a job to, you have a job to do and you can do it consciously by being attentive to the responsibilities you have in all of your actions. And including having a bite of that sandwich, knowing full well that it could be that the, the cow that was made into the brisket that's in your sandwich was, you know, your, your, your bubba or your zeta, you know, that they, they reincarnated and their way they came into this nice cow, hopefully an organic cow and free range cow. And they got a good shoychet who wasn't being rushed, he wasn't rushed, he, had, he wasn't uh, convicted of any wrongdoings or violations of child labor laws or anything. You got a good kosher shechita, and, they, and then a nice, a nice lady made the perfect brisket and made it to your sandwich, and you made a bracha, you were shuckling, and you made the bracha, and that was it. Your, your, whoever, your, your ancestor needed that one last little push to go to the highest place in heaven, you managed to pull it off. It sounds, it sounds pretty funny, but I'm not, even though it sounds rather satirical, I, I, I guess when I say it in that way, that is the message that Luria gave to his disciples about the way they should perceive their work in the world, not only when they're, you could say, in shul, doing Jewish stuff, but all the time, all of their work is working with souls. All of their wanderings in the world are, are full of encounters with souls. And every such encounter is an opportunity to help a soul. Um, so, and, and, and then, I don't know if maybe there's time for any more questions, but I would only say one last thing on that in answer to your question. Um, and that is that... Whatever you think about this, you may think it's absolute bull whatever. I'm, I'm in a shul. I'm going to con control my language. Um, one thing we know about, about this, and I'm going to say this, one thing we know scientifically about it, there have been studies. Okay? You, know, you, can look, you can find it on the internet. Now, one thing we know about it is that if a person in a particular cultural environment understands themselves as being possessed and their environment validates and affirms that understanding of their affliction, the most effective way to cure them is with an exorcism. There's good research on this. Yoram Bilu is a very prominent anthropologist and professor of psychiatry now misspoke, psychology at the Hebrew University, recently retired. Um, now today it's a, it's a bit complicated because in the modern world very few Jews believe that this is possible. That was very, you have to be in, a, in an environment that believes that this is possible for that diagnosis to be, uh, to be a, a conceivable one, right? But if you're in Mea Sharim or you're someplace in... Uh, you know, uh, in Ashkelon, and you're with a community who's recently arrived from Morocco or from Ethiopia, and they still have strong traditions of spirit possession, and a person in that community is identified as being spirit-possessed and believes themselves to be spirit-possessed as well, 
if you take them to the psychiatric hospital and you pump them full of anti-psychotic drugs, your chances of success in making them recover are much lower than the chances for recovery if you bring in an exorcist and do one of these techniques. They will feel better. It is the, the technique that responds to the, the affliction as they and their environment understand it. So uh, it's actually quite compassionate if there's a possibility of using these techniques, even in our own day, if we find ourselves somehow in an environment that is uh, still validating the possibility of their reality. Sure. No, I don't think anything could possibly help Donald Trump. Uh, um, I have a few hands, Rabbi. Uh, well, let's take two more, I suppose. Yes. Uh, which, where would the auditory, on which, on, at which point in the... Well, for example, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, as a God said, let there be ah. therefore, uh -huh. I hear what you're saying, aha. Uh -huh. Boy, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I mean, I, I don't think this is really what you're getting at, but I, I would say on the level of sound, a couple of things only. And one is that you saw, for example, that a shofar... And the blast of a shofar is a central part of exorcism rituals going back to antiquity, and it is retained even in the early modern reboot uh, or reformation of the techniques. Uh, the other is not exactly sound, but, um, but the fact that in almost every account of spirit possession we hear about a xenoglossia, which is the ability of the possessed person to speak foreign languages unknown to them. In other words, I'm the, let's say I'm possessed by a demon, and I, well, there are languages that I know, there are languages that I don't know. All of a sudden, I start speaking with a different voice. Usually it's a voice that's significantly other than the normal voice that comes out of my vocal cords, oftentimes from another part of the body altogether, according to the descriptions. Um, and that voice is often speaking a language unknown to the, the host. So it's not exactly an answer to your question, but, this, but the, the, the voice of the demon or the dead soul, the sound of the voice and the speaking in a, in a foreign language unknown to the victim of the possession um, were considered always a kind of ultimate diagnostic signs that we're dealing with spirit possession and not an organic form of mental illness or insanity. I mean, again, this goes back to one of the points I made when I began. We're not talking about people who are so much more stupid and primitive than we are, okay? They had, you can say, we don't believe in spirit possession. Fine. But they didn't see every crazy person as spirit possessed. It wasn't like that. You sometimes get that impression from 
don't know, movies or something that in these dark ages they were so primitive that everybody who was a little weird became <clears throat> in their eyes as if they were you know, spirit-possessed. But it, it wasn't like that. They knew that if somebody gets a knock on the head and then they can't talk afterwards, that they're not spirit-possessed. They have some brain damage. They understood that. You know. Yes? In the case of, uh, of Dybbuk's, and also people who were reincarnated as lesser animals, um, something went wrong. Mm. Something went wrong that the Dybbuk couldn't get on to a better, right. better way and that the person is reincarnated as a animal or an insect or That's whatever right. instead of as a human. Right. Was there an understanding that, or a theory of why this happened? Yes. And then, once you exercise the, the Dybbuk, mm -hmm. How do you care for them so this doesn't happen again so they can heal? Right. Great question. Also allows me to make a point that I think is, is worth making. Um, the question is, uh, was basically, what, uh, how do we understand how something could go so terribly wrong that a person reincarnates in a, in a, in a bad way in a, uh, and then how, do, how is that dealt with as well by these, uh, by these people who understand things uh, in that way. So I would say this. First of all, one of the things that's very different about uh, traditional Jewish thought and Kabbalah and, right, if, and modern New Age spirituality is that uh, the traditional Jewish system doesn't have this confidence that people have today in modern uh, new agey kinds of spirituality that everything is okay, everything's for the good, think positive, everything will go well for you. If you, something bad happens to you, God forbid, because you didn't think positively, it's your fault. This, this, these abominations of, um, of contemporary spirituality have no place in traditional Jewish thought where you have a few things. You have, on the one hand, you do have an idea that God is good. So there is a theodicy issue. If God is good, why do the righteous suffer? And there are lots of different answers to that over the ages. But blaming the victim is not one of the big ones. Thank, thank goodness we can be proud of that, I think. Uh, second thing I would say about it is that um, there, something that's just amazing to find in the Zohar as a kind of headquarters is what I call the doctrine of shit happens, if I'm allowed to say that in a shul. In other words, you're, the, the way the world works is, so, the, the way the world works, it's possible for things to happen that are unintended consequences. Something happened to you, so, God forbid something bad, something good, it's not because you did this or that, it's just that, that you're in a complex network and innocent bystanders sometimes get hurt. Um, so you don't infer from any situation that because some bad thing happened that it's, you know, that you can know why. Because the system is extremely complex. I could point you to the source in the Zohar that I'm thinking about in particular on this, but I think it's important to, to bracket the answer to your question with this larger statement that Jewish spirituality isn't this, uh, you know, everything is, everything is always going to be good, everything that happens to you is, you're supposed to do what's called Sidu Kadim, 
according to Jewish tradition, to say, if something bad happens to you, God forbid, to say, like, I accept the decree. It's bad, but I accept it. But it doesn't mean that you understand it, and it doesn't mean that you think it's good for me. It just means it's crap, but okay, I get it. I dealt it. I, I've been dealt this card. I accept it. I, you know, God is great. To get more specific about your thing, about your, your, the particular question, uh, there's a whole... There's a whole literature on reincarnation, a lot of different theories of reincarnation out there between, let's say, the 13th century and the 16th and 17th centuries. Different theories about who reincarnates, how many times you reincarnate, whether you go up only or up and down. Every option on the table. How does reincarnation jive with resurrection? I thought that in the 13 principles it says we have to believe in resurrection. It says also in the Talmud you have to believe. How did... How does that fit in? If you, if you reincarnated ten times, well, how, are you supposed to, how are you supposed to resurrect? You only have one soul. How are you going to feed ten bodies? So there are a lot of problems and a lot of sources, and there isn't one voice, and there isn't one answer about it. But, um, but in almost every case, the rabbi who wrote their opinion of the way re reincarnation works explains the logic of it. You'll, you'll reincarnate. It's usually, it's usually kind of measure for measure. You, you did such and such a sin, or you did such and such a mitzvah, and that kind of karmically led you to that particular form of resurrection. So the, the negative ones are easier to remember, because like a certain sin, like if you, if you were very, um, if you were very uh, sexually active, you could reincarnate as a rabbit for example. Seriously, like they say that, you know. So this is just an example. Now, if you liked ham and cheese sandwiches, they, they, they might just say, you'll be born next time, instead of being born a Jew, you'll be born a goy, then you can eat ham and cheese sandwiches, you know. So enjoy yourself, because what they ate, you know. Eat, eat, S, S, S. So they, they would explain it like that. Oh, and the second part of your question was, just remind me. Oh, yeah. Well, you don't really care for the Dybbuk, but you, the idea was to, to get the Dybbuk over the threshold, if at all possible, to get them into Gehenna. You just had to get them over. Sometimes it meant asking, do you have any kids who could say Kaddish for you? Are you really sorry that you did that when you were alive and you have a kid who can say Kaddish for you? Something like, you could, you could, you could go in that direction, and they tried to do that. I'll say a lot of the accounts are less hagiographic hey, than you might expect, like less laudatory towards the rabbis and also um, less success than you might think you would find reading about great rabbis and what they were able to do as wonder workers and magical healers. A lot of the cases that are recorded are failures where they didn't manage to get the Dybbuk out without... Uh, some secondary problem arising, either repossession, sometimes the victim dies in the course of the exorcism. There are a lot of bad outcomes that are reported, which, which also indicates when you get to the question of, like, well, why are these being circulated? Who are these for? Why do, they, why do they think that it was worth writing these down and having other Jewish people read these stories? It wasn't just... To, to make the rabbis seem like superheroes who could 
conquer the living and the dead, because a lot of times they fail. So more often, the idea was, and this is probably a good way to end, and end my answer to your question, uh, more often the idea was to say to Jews reading this material, look at how terrible this scenario is. And do you know why these poor victims found themselves in this scenario? The victims in this case not being merely the people who were possessed, but the, but the, the dibbuks themselves. What did they do? Well, they either did fathered kids out of wedlock, or they, they you know, ate treif on Yom Kippur while they were shtuping a, a shiksa, whatever. Like, they come, they, they, they'll, like, add up a lot of things together to get to the worst possible avera, right? They'll put it all in there. You see, so don't do that. If you don't do that, you won't end up in that situation. So you could say it's kind of um, literature designed to frighten the reading public into taking on higher standards of, uh, of religious practice and moral, you know, moral behavior. So there are uh, warnings. As they, the outcomes are not good. They don't promise you that if you're bad and you come back to this planet as a dibbuk, that some great Kabbalist is going to save you. It might not work. Most of the time it doesn't work. So the best thing is to make sure you have a good hechsher and that you're faithful to your wife and that you come to shul on Shabbos and you pay your dues and that you support Ari Katz, whatever Ari Katz asks you do. This is how you make sure you'll be okay in this lifetime and every subsequent lifetime. Thank you all very much.